it is very strange turning this film on in 2023 and being greeted by John Malkovich smoking a cigarette talking about surviving the plane crash. I am Zachary. And welcome to CanCon, where you can get your CanCon quota filled by listening to uh, two Canadians have conversations about cannibal films. Uh, Zachary, what film are we discussing today? Today we are going to discuss a very unique film in the pantheon of in the the can the cantheon of cannibal films. Uh, Frank Frank Marshall's Alive. From 1993, yes, Frank Marshall is the filmmaker, and uh, this film is, in a weird way, even more so than Silence of the Lambs, which we discussed last week. I feel like this is maybe the ultimate, like, famous incident of cannibalism in Hollywood filmmaking. It seems to get referenced a lot. The film gets referenced a lot specifically because of its cannibal content. Jocelyn, would you agree with that? Yeah, I absolutely would agree with that. Um, it's a really interesting film for a couple of reasons, for things on screen and behind the scenes, and also because it is the only film that we will be discussing, it's the only film that I know of that is uh, a film that has cannibalism in it that is also based on a true story. Other than crime films such as Dahmer. Sure, sure. Other than specifically, that's a good point. Uh, it is the only film that is not a crime film um, that also includes cannibalism. Yeah, I, as far as I can think off the top of my head, unless there's some weird abstract example, but chances are uh, we're pretty much the beginning and end of that topic is going to be alive. So we'll have a lot to talk about today. We absolutely will. So there's a number of topics I want to hit in this conversation, but I thought it would be interesting for us to just both talk first about where we first encountered um, the story, whether it's it, whether the story is the film or the events that happened. Um, and I just want to do a little bit of a footnote before we do that. So this is a film that is based on a true story. The events that kind of inspire the film take place in 1972. 76? 76. In the 1970s. Uh, I think it's I think it's 72, but that's in the 70s. Uh, we know for sure. And the film is released in the 90s. 93. Yeah. 93. Okay. Um, and it is sort of loosely based on a book written by one of the survivors, but also on, obviously, the events that happened. Um, so it's kind of twice mediated, right? It's not, it's based on a true story, of course, um, but it's also inspired by a book and even a book that is really um, meticulously dedicated to getting all of the details right is always going to, um, is always going to be one version of a true story rather than something that we could call like big T truth or an absolute or perfect truth. And then when we get to the film, there's this other level of mediation where there's a 
a number of things, a number of ellipses, some things that are kind of added to the film for dramatic effect, uh, and those kinds of things. So I wanted to just also really, really highlight that we're talking about the filmic depiction of the events, not the events themselves, right? So it's a twice-mediated text. Um, I think in a couple places we'll probably reference that it is a true story or we'll talk about the event itself, but we're going to try to be really careful to make it super clear anytime we're not talking about the film as a text. Um, there's a really lovely episode of a podcast that I really like called You're Wrong About that is um, a deep dive into the events themselves. And I will put the information for anyone who is interested in that, uh, the information in the show description. And it's a really lovely, um, kind of humbling look at, at those events. I really highly recommend the episode. Um, but we're doing something fundamentally different. So Zachary, let's start off with you, where did you first encounter the film, the story? When did you first meet Alive? Uh, I, in my, I would have been, I wasn't a teenager yet, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'm born in 85, so I, I didn't see it when it first came out in 93, but I certainly knew about it pretty much from when it first was released i think there was even advertisements for it in in marvel and dc comics back then so that's always a funny way to like find out about like adult things is that they're advertised in spider-man uh but i knew about the cannibalism in it and i had friends who had seen it essentially when it first came on video who had also talked about how uh exciting thrilling i don't know however like eight-year-olds would describe the plane crash scene at the beginning so based on those two things there was kind of like an air uh, aura of you know that the kind of forbidden fruit sort of aura where it was like this is dealing with weird adult stuff there's like a sports team stranded in the mountains they're going to eat each other there's a plane crash a lot of people die um but not in the context of like a horror movie or a slasher kind of movie. So it was like, this was like a real, you know, capital SF serious film that people were talking about and that some adults I knew seemed quite scandalized by. Uh, and unlike, say, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which I'd heard a lot about but wasn't allowed to watch, uh, my parents were seemingly okay with me seeing alive so my brother and i rented it one night and watched it and i probably was like 10 i guess how about you jocelyn yeah that's a 10 is really young too to be thinking about a real life example of cannibalism for sure um so i encountered the story or the events first probably around the same time i think or i'm a, I'm a few years younger than you so i but I think I was about nine, uh, when my dad was reading the book. And it's kind of strange to me um, that that is how I encountered the story, because literally the only book that I, like, my dad does not, does not read, um, like, does not read. The only book that I know for sure my dad has read is, is this book. And I remember him, we were at the cabin, it was the summertime, and he's reading this book about uh, young men on... He called it a soccer team. I'm very certain. I think it's a common um, kind of mistake that 
uh, American, probably also Canadian. I mean, my dad's Canadian, like I am Canadian, um, uh, viewers of the film make is instead of calling it a rugby team, calling it a soccer team. Um, and I just, all I remembered at that point was it's a soccer team. There's a plane crash. They ate each other. And my dad is really fascinated with what he described as like, they didn't have to, where they didn't have to really, from what I remember, really meant like, oh, if they had gone, if they'd made another decision on which way to kind of trek her out of the mountain, they would have been much closer to help or, you know, like think like little, um, in hindsight, what might get described as mistakes. Obviously, they're not mistakes, right? These are people just like trying to survive and doing what seems possible for them in the moment. Um, but a kind of hindsight view on what if they had done X and Y instead. And so it was my first encountering. And then we watched it in my grade 10 English literature class, which is so funny to me. Um, uh, is it like, is it sh like, sure, it is literature? Um, is the original book even, is, wouldn't it be translated from Spanish? I was nine. Yeah. I did not, yeah, not, um, not something that was on my radar. And we did no research about the book or the actual events beyond how they are depicted in the film for this episode. Cause again, we are, um, we're working with, I think, collective memory of like reverberations of the story of the event kind of for the event to be nice and clear about like, we're not, we're not experts, um, or, or even we haven't researched the event at all. We're, we're talking about the film itself. Um, and even on that front, we had to look up Frank Marshall and his, uh, filmography about two minutes before we went live here so oh let's talk about that I really um <laughs> obviously we're going to talk about the cannibalism in this film but there's so many pieces that I find just absolutely fascinating like I cannot decide <clears throat> I, I don't like is this a good film is a question that I'm still stuck with um but let's talk about the director so I think this is this wowed me so what are the other things the director has has worked on as a director yeah so this is what is very interesting it sounds so frank marshall along with uh steven spielberg and producer kathleen kennedy who frank marshall ends up marrying were the founders of amblin entertainment in 1991 so spielberg's already riding high off the success of everything he did from jaws forward so Frank Marshall's very much like a money man at this point. He's not like an artist. He's, he's a producer. So he starts, shortly before that, he starts directing his own films. And his first three pictures that he directs all have a certain kind of catastrophic flavor to them. He goes from arachnophobia in 1990 onward to Alive in 1993. And then to another movie that is kind of a combination of those first two movies, which is Congo for which he's nominated for worst director at the 1995 golden raspberry awards. And then he doesn't direct another picture until he makes a film called eight below, which I've never heard of in 2006. And then just a couple of years ago in 2020, he directed a documentary about the Bee Gees called how can you mend a broken heart, which he got a lot of acclaim and nominations for. So his, his actual filmography as a director is quite small, and his 90s output, which is his most prolific period, is focused on kind of grisly disaster-type movies. Uh, but as a producer, he's 
it's hit after hit. He produced Raiders of the Lost Ark, Poltergeist, The Color Purple, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Hook, The Ending and the Cupboard, The Sixth Sense, like just goes on and on, Seabiscuit, The Born Ultimatum, Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. And he's still, this year, he's going to be producing the new Indiana Jones movie. And he produced all four Jurassic World films. So he's he's a guy who's put up a lot of money for a lot of blockbusters. He's overseen the production of a lot of blockbusters. But his actual films where he's behind the camera are, uh, they're cult pictures. You know, there's no big hits there, I don't think. Alive is probably the best known one. Yeah, and it's... A cult hit is a really good way to describe it, because um, it's kind of it's it's kind of mystifying why it is as well known as it is. And I think right, this is the part where um, some of that has to do, and, and we'll get into more detail, obviously. But some of that has to do with the story itself being really fascinating to people, um, and the film doing something with that story that feels right or true. And we'll, we'll talk about how there's a lot of things about the film that um, are funny, that feel like maybe they could have made some different choices, maybe some things could have been stronger. There's one part that's absolutely baffling to both. We laughed when we were watching it. Um, but it, it has, again, like we described Sons of the Lambs, this kind of staying power, and that has to come from somewhere. Um, sidebar, arachnophobia. I have seen arachnophobia. I'm horribly, I have arachnophobia. Um, and I've seen this film because a guy I dated in high school thought he could cure my arachnophobia by forcing me to watch that film. And it did not work. So, uh, that's fine. That's a fun connection. I'm still waiting to test out someone's, uh, fear of apes by showing them Congo. You know, we can try all of the Frank Marshall films and see what they cure people or not cure people of. Sure. So let's talk about the film itself. Um, Zachary, do you want to, uh, do you want to just give an overview of the film's plot? Yeah, it's, it's a super weird film. The plot is in the opening moments, the plane carrying the rugby team crashes into the mountains, the Andes mountains. I think it's either in, it's, it's, um, Outside of Chile. They're in Chile. In Chile. They're in the Chile mountainside. And it's it's an incredible scene. It's horrific. You see the back of the plane fly off. People are flying out. It crash lands. They regroup. And then from then on, pretty much for the next two hours, we're with the rugby team, the survivors. You know, some people will live. Some will die. There comes the big decision on whether or not they're going to eat the dead, which gets hinted at early on and then fulfilled. I think by the end of the first hour, they've resorted to cannibalism. I think that that sounds about right, but um, and we, then, didn't, we didn't take notes on. Yeah. That's, we, not, that's not a science. In any, in any event, uh, it's a huge ensemble cast of mostly unknowns. I mean, Ethan Hawke is the big name in it, and everyone's kind of got shaggy hair and a beard. I, I had... No recollection of uh, Ileana Douglas being in it. I was that was fun to see her in it this time around. But um, it's easy to get characters confused. I don't think that's I've seen that criticism made a few times. Uh, and because we're dealing with a cast of twenty plus people who all get screen time, 
Uh, there's, you know, some some jumbling around. Some characters seem to come out of nowhere. Some seem to disappear. And we follow different characters, mostly the Ethan Hawke character, especially by the second half. He's very much in the forefront. I think, I think his character is the only character whose name sticks for me with the character. So he plays Nando. Nando. He's kind of the group's leader. I believe Roberto is the name of... There's a character early on who they almost tease being a more central character where he takes the lead and is going to direct traffic and come up with a plan of survival. Uh, and then things don't go according to plan. Yeah, but but largely it's there's there's people whose stories we focus on a little bit more than others and who have more of a straight line from beginning to end. But for the most part, the plot itself is very linear and straightforward, but it's almost as if the character development is episodic. Yeah, and I think that's one of the... We should say it, it ends with a rescue, so... Yes, they do get saved. The Coles Notes version of the plot is we... Um, and I remembered it starting with the plane crash also, but it doesn't. It starts with John Malkovich, and it ends well, with I John Well, I was going to get to John Malkovich. I was going <laughs> to devote ten minutes to talking about how bizarre that is, but we can... We can we'll come back to that. We'll circle um, back, yeah. So it's bookended with John Malkovich smoking in a dark room. I, I think... Supposedly, he's narrating, he's telling a story. He's the author of the book, presumably. Presumably. He, I think, is doing kind of a weird, somewhat implacable accent, but, I mean, Malkovich has such a funny, affected way of speaking that it's hard to tell if that's not just his own kind of theatrical delivery. But he's smoking, there's clouds of smoke all around him, he's... He's telling his story like a, a war vet, like we get the idea even before the film starts that, like, this man has seen some things. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then we got Plane Crash. Most of the film is devoted to the really long period during which they survive in the snow, on this mountain, the rescue efforts have... Um, uh, they understand that basically no one is looking for them. Eventually, members of the group have to take a really dangerous, hazardous, difficult trek to find someone to come and rescue the group. And we end with sort of the helicopters coming in um, and presumably rescuing rescuing the uh, rescuing the team and, and all the survivors. So it's a really, really simple plot. Mm-hmm. One of the things, Zachary, you mentioned, you know, some of the really, I think, just apt criticisms, right? It's really hard to keep straight who's who. There's a lot of characters. Character development is episodic. Um, and and that's... How do I... I'm not... I'm not sure how to... This is part of, I guess, what is baffling to me about this film is those things are true and somehow they add up to this really positive thing, which is that it's it's so clearly a film about this group having to be a community and figure out... Not that everything is, like runs smoothly and everyone's in agreement all of the time. Um, of course not, right? That would be... Like, that's impossible, even in societies where um, we're not out in the middle of, you know, a mountain in the snow with half a plane to serve as our home or whatever. Um, but it's really a story about the survival of the group. And I think that that's... Um, of the things that the film does well, I think that's a really key takeaway that is really clearly communicated. 
Yeah, I found I found my memory of watching it as a child and then especially watching it now um is that the the kind of uh half-baked character development really just serves to make the film itself more transporting like we're not distracted or overly invested in like character arcs or narratives and because the brutality of what they go through is rendered so starkly and really so believably like it's such a claustrophobic film it's such a cold film like you really feel cold throughout watching it um, there's a scene where the the half of the plane they're all bundled up in gets hit by an avalanche, and then for the next like 25 minutes or so, of the film, they're just like the survivors are essentially bundled up in blankets on top of one another, like it's just like sardines in a can. And some of them have have died. Some have died. Yeah, there's there's eight dead in the in the plane with them underneath all the snow, and it's, so it's like that really unthinkable horror, and it's because it's not. It's not overly, um, the direction is very just stark and straightforward, like almost like unambitious in terms of like, you know, artistic, uh, trickery or, or any flourishes. It's just kind of depicting what happened to these people. And it's, uh, it's really harrowing. It's, it's in a way where I don't think it would work if we were, offsetting the brutality of what they go through with with too much uh human interest in like the individual personalities yeah no that's a really um thank you that's a really good way to describe that and that that kind of extended scene where they're they're in in the plane and they've been boxed in by the avalanche and they're sitting there with the dead is so hard to watch and it's it's one of the it's like that scene and the opening plane crash are really well shot and they are really tense and scary. Like it's not a horror film, right? It's not trying to scare us. The cannibalism in the film is almost the opposite of scary. There's a curiosity about it, but there's also a matter of factness about it. The film um, doesn't, there's some, there we'll talk about it in a minute, like, there are some choices that the filmmakers could have made to make it seem more ritualistic, or even just to make it a bigger kind of feature of the film. Like, there, you you know what's happening, but it's not super present in front and center, even though it's the, the thing that people remember about the film more than anything else. Um, but that that uh, claustrophobic scene after the avalanche is one of the scenes that really makes you um, root for, root for these young men, those who are, you know, you're like trying to count how many are still there and, and they've lost their friends, but they still have this will to survive. And it's really, I don't know, it's a really powerful feeling for sure. Like watching that, the way we get invested in their survival. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great point in it. I was going to go back to this too, because I was thinking about the conversations I would have with people when I was a kid and it first came out who had seen it and, and after I had seen it. And I feel like for people of that age who saw it, I remember the conversation being less about, Oh, did you like this part? Or did you like that part? And more about what would you do? Like it really, we felt like it gave us a sense of like, this was a film to make you question, would you be willing to eat the dead? Like, would you be one of the people who there's a lot of people who kind of, 
who lose it, you know, who, who just start to get detached from reality right away because of the, the loneliness and the dire straits that the, the team is in. Um, so it was interesting too, to see as an adult that it still has that feeling to it where I'm constantly thinking like, you know, would you be one of the people who could survive and, and, how difficult would it be for you to make some of these difficult decisions that they have to make these impossible decisions they have to make? Um, which, and so, yeah. The, and the first eating scene is kind of, it, it almost invites you to put yourself in that position because we see, I think it's about two thirds of the survivors have made up their mind that they're, they're willing to eat the dead, but there's still quite a few who are against it. And it doesn't quite come down to a vote as much as it comes down to sort of a big uh, town hall meeting between everyone. And you kind of see both sides bouncing back and forth. And yeah, very much an invitation to picture yourself in the plane with them and thinking about what you would or wouldn't say, would or wouldn't feel. And I think people's initial reaction to the first scene where they, they eat the dead would depend a lot on that. I found myself relieved during that scene because i was like okay thank god they're finally going to eat whatever you know regardless of what it is but for other people it was probably like oh no you know they 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 lost their humanity they're they're eating each other now does that ring true to you jocelyn yeah absolutely um one of the things that i am going to read some of the three-star reviews not now later um because i wanted to see what reviews are for this film and they are not good um Critics are mixed. Audience, like I think I went to Rotten Tomatoes, super scientific. Uh, audience members are mixed, and then I just fell into the delightful world of three star reviews, which are just so like no one knows what three stars actually means. Um, but reading like pages and pages and pages of reviews, um, there were a few that were in the absolute minority, but a few people really felt they needed to say these are people are no longer human. They're subhuman. They've lost their humanity. Um, which I don't think that the filmmakers don't think that I don't think that's a common view of, of the survivors, but, but it is part of kind of the, the hard question, right. Of this thing of eating, um, of eating other people. Um, I know when I was watching that scene and we talked a little bit, you and I about it, right. They, they have, it's in the, I think it's in the dark and they have, they have a fire, but I might be mushing two scenes. It's daylight when they first eat, but there is another scene where they're by the fire, I think. Yeah. I think, I think it's when they're deciding what to do. That scene is in the dark. Yeah. And they have this discussion and it feels that this is, that it's easier for, the survivors to want their own bodies to be eaten should they die than for they themselves to kind of come to terms with eating the body of another person. And that to me felt very, I'm like, I think that's how I would like, I mean, I think that's what I think about it. Right. If I'm dead and like, I don't, I, if I'm dead and that's the only way to survive, like, of course I want you know, people I care about, or even just other people who deserve to live if they can, right, to, to use my body in that way, but the idea of doing the eating is so much more complicated, I guess. Like, it's simpler to say, um, that you would want to be eaten, also because you wouldn't, you wouldn't be there anymore, right? That's kind of that, it's a... Yeah. Yeah, it's a weirdly 
a weirdly complicated kind of loop. Yeah, and it, it invites, uh, throughout the film, there's a lot of, um, a lot of spiritual overtones. Um, there's kind of a sense of, like, has God put these people here to test them? Is, you know, are they in so far of an abyss out in the snow that God's no longer present? The One of the survivors, uh, when they're discussing whether or not to eat the dead, mentions that their spirits are no longer in their bodies, like we're consuming the body but not the soul of the person. Uh, there's an ongoing uh, series of sequences with an atheist who's unwilling to say the rosary, and then I believe it's before the avalanche, he, or this, when they're fearing the second avalanche, he says the rosary. So those kinds of spiritual conversations, I feel, work really well to also tackle the kind of um, contemplating the unthinkable uh, that comes with a decision like having to eat your dead uh, comrades because there's no other available food. Yeah, and, and I think they the film could have chosen to make that link symbolically to make that link a really strong link the film could essentially have chosen to um to have treated the eating of human flesh as being like communion Mm -hmm. um i think that uh, and it chose not to i think that it's a good choice that they chose that they chose not to i think i think catholics would have protested (laughs) um for sure maybe other christians as well but catholics for sure um, and I think it, it, it keeps alive the question of, like, those big existential questions that become very immediate and real when you're on the side of a mountain and people who were alive with you, you know, laughing and eating snacks on a plane a few minutes or hours or days ago are now lying in the snow next to you, right? It keeps those existential questions alive and real without kind of forcing a religious symbology um and without putting a neat kind of bow on on those on those big questions at the same time yeah i think for like for the full two hours of a live there's a certain kind of uh almost like a kind of working class or like every person-ness to it where one of the common criticisms that we both had of it that many of the critics have is that it's corny it's cheesy, there's there's corny dialogue, it's sentimental. Uh, but it's corny and sentimental in places where it really could have become quite philosophical or pretentious or even more heavy-handed. And you really don't want, I don't think, the dialogue to try to be, to try to compete with the such a horrible, concrete situation. Like, you don't want them competing for... Um, for like overwroughtness, you know, we, the situation itself is so unthinkable that having and having these, these very, very difficult decisions that the characters are constantly having to make. Um, I think by being sort of vague with any sort of religious overtones and symbology, it, 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 it's continues to invite the viewer to insert themselves and, try to think about themselves in the situation. Yeah. And I, I, I really like that. And it's for, for me, th- this piece kind of fell together as you were speaking there, Zachary. It, um, 
it's kind of a weird irony of the film, right? Like it could, the script could have been tighter, there could have been less corniness, it could have been much more philosophical or have much more religious symbolism or... Brooding or contemplative or ponderous, yeah. Yeah, it could have been, I mean, Darren Aronofsky's Mother, which is not the... Next film, I think it's our second to last, second to last film. Af- it's going to be after Jennifer's body, body, correct? Yeah. Yes, um, is obviously not based on a true story, but it's in this mode. It's like highly philosophical, and it's thinking about religion, and it's in this, um, and it's beautifully put together and haunting all at the same time. And and a lot could have been written and pieced together in a mode like that. Like the story potentially lends itself to that to that kind of, that kind of mode. Um, but, but keeping in the corniness and the, the rawness and keeping away from trying to really kind of overwrite a, a philosophy onto it, um, where philosophy kind of means can mean a theology or can mean, um, kind of fill, can, can be filled in in a number of ways. Uh, resisting that is, I think part of what maybe is part of its staying power, it's charm almost. I mean, I think about a film, I keep thinking of The Revenant with Leonardo DiCaprio, which takes itself much, much more seriously than Alive and is also about people suffering out in the snow for hours on end. And it doesn't, It that film feels like escapism and this film feels, there's a realness to it. And I think it comes from that, that simplicity and that, you know, whether it, for all I know, Frank Marshall thought that some of the corny dialogue in this was like going to knock people on their asses. You know, it's hard to tell the level of self-awareness of this film, but uh, the the craftspersonship of it is is excellent. And at least in terms of the the setting and the the way the disasters framed and technical aspects like that. So it's. It's to the, it is to the, I agree. Yeah. I like what, where you went with that, Jocelyn, that it's to the film's benefit that it, it doesn't, it doesn't brood too much. This isn't, yeah, it's not the Revenant. It's not 127 hours. This is a very different kind of film where we see, uh, just kind of, we don't get inside people's heads. We, we, see their bodies. We get inside their bodies literally when the eating scene starts. And when, you know, we see people trying to pull themselves out of plane seats, uh, airplane seats and horrific things like this, the, uh, and something about like the, the abundance of daylight and the whiteness of the snow. Like it's, it's very uncinematic. I keep coming back to the word stark, but it really is like, it's the spectacle of it in plain sight rather than trying to, transfigure anything too much absolutely i think um we get in our own hands watching it which which we've kind of all but said so far but i think it's really um really true absolutely i want to i want to talk about the setting um and the peculiar americanness of this film that is not set in america that does not pertain to a rugby team from america it's a uruguayan um rugby team in chile um, and I've been thinking about, like, between watching and recording, I've been really thinking about how it's kind of set nowhere. 
Like, we don't, right, there's, we, we start on, I mean, we start on end with John Malkovich, which we'll come back to when we talk about kind of some of the silly things that we want to kind of poke at a little for some. Even the weird framing of a, a person's memoir, but we're going to have one of the few recognizable actors in the film play the author of the memoir before we proceed to a heavily, uh, you know, uh, cinematized version of said memoir. Yeah. So we start on a plane and we end with a helicopter coming in, the promise of a rescue. Um, and a plane is kind of nowhere, right? Like a, a it's not on land, right? It's not in, and, and I understand <clears throat> like there's legal airspace belonging to different nations and so on. Right. But I'm thinking like symbolically. Um, and then we are in a mountain and we can find, like we can, we can find a map and we can know where the plane, the real plane, the physical plane uh, in our plane of existence, not the fictional plane where the real plane has crash landed and follow the track. And, and those things are very real in the events that happen. But in the course of the film, it could be any mountain range. It's drop in the ocean. It, yeah. And it's, I think I said when, when we were watching it, that it reminds me of Zubrisky. Oh, Zubrisky point. Yeah. Which is also set in a desert. I mean, not, not also, this film is not set in a desert, but it's set in a desert. That's like kind of nowhere. Yeah. And a, a film made by Italians about America rather than America, Americans making a film about Uruguayans in Chile. <laughs> yeah. And, and these are both, um, part of the thing we want to do is we want our, our discussions of films to be accessible. We don't want to be too critical theory or philosophical, but both the desert of Zubrowski Point and the, the horrendous conditions on this snowy mountainside um, operate in those texts as something called a heterotopia or uh, a similar concept in literature is like in Shakespeare, you have like the green space. Obviously, this is not a green space, but it's this kind of space that is marked out. It's different. It's separate from the rest of the world in um, physical ways. So the things that are there in symbolic ways and also in what it can be allowed to happen there. Um, and so I think that set like really... Um, I think the film is conscious of the setting as enabling this act of cannibalism in a way that it can only be enabled in a space like this, that we just understand it really, really differently than we do in almost any other kind of kind of space. And by space, I mean like the physical, is it a desert? Is it a mountain? Is it whatever? But also space in the sense of, is it a normal space? Is it a regular space? Is it an institution? Is it a heterotopia or a space that's marked off in this way? Yeah. Like a sense that the rules do not apply here. I, there are rules that apply, but they're not the rules that you and I live by. The social contract is fundamentally altered. Yeah. Well, I brought up Lord of the Flies, uh, just as a similar in a sense, a similar story, except not a true story, but um, of, you know, you have a plane crash in a remote area and suddenly society are at least some sort of rules, whether it, you know, develops to the state of what you would call a society or not develops. And, you know, some systems work and some break down. And we see some of that in Alive as well. 
Yeah, and I, I, that's such a good comparison, and I, I like it because it's like Alive is the anti-Lord of the Flies. It's uplifting. It's, yeah. it's, it's weird. They eat the dead, and they don't, yeah, they don't hunt each other. Yeah, and they eat the dead in a way that is um, treated, it's treated with respect, it's treated with um, dignity, and with kind of the depth that that kind of act requires. Mm-hmm. Um, part of, of what inspired me to take on the podcast and to to inspired me to think about cannibalism and depictions of cannibalism um was an article I was reading after watching Bones and All and I will uh I don't have it in front of me I'll put the the author and the article name in the show description to give them to give them full credit um and they do it's pretty normal a bit of a review of the literature so what are people kind of saying about you know texts like this and they say there's two functions of cannibalism that are really the most common and one is a sort of contemporary depiction of cannibalism as a comment on overconsumption under like capitalism and the other is an older kind of function of settler colonialism which is creating um really big distinctions between groups of people based on race so it's a pretty awful violent um kind of form of text or of story but it's you know telling stories about scary people who live in a land that you have just discovered big scare quotes around discovered who you know are very different from you because they practice cannibalism and so in one case right in the first case stories about cannibalism are a comment on our own behavior and in the other they are a comment on the behavior of others as a way of distinguishing ourselves from from others or creating an us them dynamic and i don't think that that cannibalism in this text does either of those things. It does something really, really different. And honestly, I, th- I really think that that's part of what makes it a compelling text. Yeah, when you frame it that way, which is super interesting, it feels almost like the cannibalism, uh, and to go back to sort of religious metaphors, is, is one of the many rites of passage in this film in terms of maintaining one's humanity through these unthinkable conditions in that rather than a story where we frame the the scary other as the cannibal this is a case where when put against the impossible odds of nature cannibalism is just one of the many tests of survival and and to come out the other side with that dignity and humanity intact yeah, I mean, what is more human than wanting to live, right? Like, what is more human than wanting to live or to survive? Or even the people who say, like, if I go, please eat my body. Like, more human than wanting others to live. I think it's a pretty... Yeah. Yeah. And seeing that... Um, being conscious of a, of a notion that harming one another... Uh, you know, it extends beyond death. Like, it's not like these bodies immediately become disposable uh, sources of food. This is still a situation that has to be really thoroughly discussed between the survivors. And and uh, and there's still, I mean, even later to the film, there's holdouts and people who haven't eaten and are starving. And uh, 
it's never framed, even by the people who first suggested, it's never framed in the film as an easy option for anybody. No, and and even that, um, I think we see, I think we see someone eat one time, like the depiction, not just of, like we see, we see human flesh, we see the, the cutting of flesh, we hear people say with a good deal of care, right? Have you eaten? I'm so worried you're not eating. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but we, I think there's only one actual depiction of of the act. The first, yeah, the one big scene in the middle of the film. Yeah, and then I remember distinctly we see like someone preparing pieces of meat in one part, which is kind of just sort of a grisly reminder of the reality of how everyone's managed to survive this long. It, it happens towards the very end of the film, but yeah, for the most part, it's the actual depiction of eating is limited to the one major scene where it's first introduced. Yeah, and and I think that's that's a a really smart decision on the part of the filmmakers. It allows it to um, part of what's mysterious or baffling to me about this film is I'm like, feels like the filmmakers knew that the cannibalism was the part of the story. It's going to get people to rent it or go to a theater or whatever. And so they knew it had to be there, but they also really, really, really wanted to treat it respectfully. Um, even I remembered it being way bloodier. Like it's not, it doesn't revel mm-hmm. in the bloodiness or the messiness. The cannibalism is never, um, the difficulty of the act, as you say, never is never, um, never goes away. No. And I mean, not to try to, um, also explain it away in a more just sort of boring empirical way but i think it also kind of speaks to what the the social mores of the early 90s were in terms of what people were willing to or were not even what they were willing to watch but what they were what producers and filmmakers were interested in depicting in a big hollywood picture like this which you know was made by amblin entertainment uh whereas i feel like if you were to do this story now, there would be this kind of added desire to like be even more gritty and unflinching and, and show more gore. And it, it would take on a different, a different tone and character. Um, and yeah, there's again, going back to the, the cheesy dialogue, it, it works in tandem with the lack of, of gore in terms of the eating there's violence in, in like the plane crash scene and in a lot of other ways but by not reveling in the gore and by you know there's not even that much foul language or anything like there's something there's like a real innocence at the heart of the film and a simplicity that again would have been lost if you even with the uplifting message of survival like there's an invitation to wallow more in cynicism and the film I don't think there's like anything really cynical about the film at all. Like looking back at it, all the, even the characters who are presented as being kind of gruff or unlikable are, you know, no one's uh, leaving them out to, to fend for themselves or to freeze. You know, it's, it's, it's a very gentle film in a lot of ways. Yeah. It's a really gentle film. It, um, very little happens and yet watching it, uh, again, it it was like, oh, this is a film that is two hours and change and doesn't feel like it's two hours and change, even though very little happens. So as much as I kind of poke at it and I 
you know, part of me is like, is this a good movie? Is it like, that's a yeah. real question I have. I'm like, well, it, it was, it could watch as well. Right. It, it holds up, I think for being so refreshing, um, not to turn this into a treatise on like, you know, uh, major trends and tastes from one era versus another, but I just watching it now, it felt so like, strange like it's there's a real otherness to it that i wasn't expecting and uh it takes it from like a film that i would have maybe been right in line with the three star reviews of 1993 but in 2023 it's more like yeah maybe this is like a it's kind of a classic in some ways it survived the test of time and it it uh it watches really strangely now and really interestingly yeah, absolutely. Um, and we will, again, I want to, we'll read some of the three-star reviews because they're just, they're I'm, <laughs> I'm amused by them. But yeah. I think we should talk about um, how American it is. Oh, yeah, though, we touched on that. Yeah, it's we... not an American story. We talked about John Malkovich. We should talk about the baby shoes never worn. Uh, and then we'll read reviews. So, Zach, why is this film so American? Yeah, because it was produced by the guy, the guys who made Indiana Jones and E.T. and they, uh, they, it's such a, a against the odds story. It's such a heroic story. Like, goddamn, if it wasn't Americans, we're gonna make them Americans. There's, these are the whitest, most kind of. What's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Like strapping? Like they're just they they got a real Americanness to them. These these young men. Yeah, they're most of the actors are white. I think we we've decided looking at some of the names Italian actors. A lot of Italian last names, yeah. Um, which is part of most of the actors are American actors. Yes, they sound American of Italian families. Um, yeah, uh, Ethan Hawke is there. Ethan Hawke is definitely American. Fresh off of Dead Poet Society, too. So there's no illusion of, like, we're going to cast an unknown. He's going to grow a beard. We're going to give him a tan. Like, we were joking. By the end of the movie, Ethan Hawke still has that kind of, like, 90s heartthrob, like, with the hair straight back. And his, like, goatee never grows beyond the goatee. He's, like, the all-American boy for this film. He's like the all-American boy, and he's in this. And film. he's in this film, and they don't try to hide him. No, yeah, maybe for the first hour he's not that prominent, and then he's in it a lot. But I mean, it's not until the second half that it really becomes like the story of him leading the 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 search for Chile. Yeah, that, well, the truck to find to find someone to come in with the helicopter and rescue them. Yes, yeah. they're already in Chile, but to find the 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 city. Yeah. Um, at one point, they are burning money to make a fire, which, like, is, I get it, right? Like, that's a powerful way to show. Like, money is so meaningless in this context, in this setting. But right? dry paper, very hard to come by. Yeah, but it's American money that they're yeah. burning. USD. Which is just, I don't, like, I can't, it's one, I can't tell if it is, um... If it's like what we would call a mistake or an accident or a really conscious choice, like to um, to speak to American audiences in particular, like if that's just the audience that is imagined for the film, and so the image of like your own currency being 
burns might help you do exactly what we've been talking about. Like put your, really put yourself in the place of the people, right? This isn't, this isn't other people who are somehow differently human than, than you and I are. These are people who wake up each day and have feelings just like you, each individual in the audience has. And have U.S. dollars in their back pocket, yeah. Yeah, fear death and have dollar bills, right? Death and taxes. Death and taxes. Yeah. Uh, do you want to talk about John Malkovich? Yeah, and we'll just briefly, I guess, because we kind of joked about him already. But yeah, the, it is very... I was talking about the strangeness of the film. It is very strange turning this film on in 2023 and being greeted by John Malkovich smoking a cigarette, talking about surviving the plane crash in the mountains. Um, and he, I mean, this would have been like for like Malkovich buffs, I guess like in the line of fire, he, he plays the assassin. He gets the Oscar nomination. He's suddenly like this very in demand character actor. So it is very strange turning this film on in 2023 and being greeted by John Malkovich, smoking a cigarette, talking about surviving the plane crash in the mountains kind of uh, miscommunications to some sort of absolute truth in the narrative. Yeah, I wonder if, um, like, was this the artsy framing of the of the 90s, right? This is, is a way of, of clue, not cluing, like, the audience presumably knows, but, like, a, uh, a way of kind of telling, I almost said telling on itself, but that's not what I mean, a way of gesturing to the audience, like, we know this is a retelling of a retelling of a retelling year away from Forrest Gump, which would make an entire film about a retelling of stories. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. That's a really good point. Um, I just, in my brain, I, the John Malkovich pieces are like, I'm, I'm really sorry to the director. I trying to do something with them for me watching it. They just feel like the previews before the movie and then somehow there's a preview after it. They just don't feel attached. They feel very incongruent. Yeah. And in a film that's already so mixed up in it's like Americanness, we pick an actor who's like the least American of all American <laughs> actors. Who's very <laughs> like, uh, very quirky and European in his, in his mannerisms and his delivery. It's a strange choice. It's the, not just the casting. I mean, the, the book ending is a strange choice. The lighting is very corny. It looks like he's interrogating someone in a in the back room of a police station with his cigarette out and, like, one light bulb hanging. Yeah, and it would be less of a strange choice if it was a film that wasn't, you know, like we, we said earlier, it's so clearly the story of this collective survival and it's as much the story of the people who didn't make it or who survived for a while and then, you know, die in the avalanche. And um, they're all kind of mixed in with that collective survival piece, um, which just makes the, the individual person narrating like as a, as a frame feel like it's like, it's a, a different kind of disconnect. It's not a story about this one guy yeah, I wanted to make a comparison. I don't want to go too far with it, but just given how closely Frank Marshall and Steven Spielberg have worked through their whole careers from everything I I gained today through Wikipedia, um, it's really interesting to me that this film came out almost at the exact same time as Shakespeare's Schindler's List because they do 
everything differently. Um, Schindler's List is uh, reconstructed painstakingly from history. Most of the victims in it remain nameless, and we actually focus on the story of like a perpetrator and someone performing a rescue mission in, in Oscar Schindler. Um, and it's in both stark black and white. It's ugly. It's, it's poetic. It's poignant. And it's very, it's high art and alive is by comparison, like bright. And we know everyone's name, even if we forget their names right away, but everyone is named and it's full of corny dialogue and there's still monstrosity and, uh, and horrible violence in it, but it's, it's a story of uh, a different kind of perseverance and survival. And they, they make really weird, uh, kind of a point and counterpoint to one another of how to tell a historical, like unthinkably awful story, uh, in the context of Hollywood, early nineties filmmaking and, and again, by comparison how they were received, I mean, Schindler's List is a classic now. It swept the Oscars and, you know, deservedly so. And Alive is kind of remembered as this, like, the weird footnote, like the movie where people eat each other. Yeah, well, that's, it's so much more than that. As, like... Yeah, it's much more complicated than that. Yeah, even being able to have this much conversation, and I feel like we're not going to exhaust all the things we even could say about it right it says that it's so much more than that yeah absolutely um, let's talk about the shoes yes the children's shoes <laughs> i shouldn't you it's... introduce it because i went on at length at the last sidebar there so <clears throat> at one point ethan hawk's character and two other of the young men are going to set out on a really long trek and the idea is they're going to go and see if they can sort of climb over the mountain ranges and find rescue and we've all uh, either you've seen the film or you're here to have the ending spoiled which you have already there is a rescue and it's successful and um, one of the other members of the group is kind of losing it is just like and he's really scared that if they leave that's going to kind of be an ending of some kind um, which feels is very relatable um, that like if we split up the group, then who like our whole survival has been being this group. Right. So if we send you three off, what then? Are we just going to one by one go off into the mountains and never come back? Yeah. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And so it's, is it Ethan Hawke's character? Yeah, it's Ethan Hawke's character. And then I believe the other character is supposed to be the man who eventually grows up to be John Malkovich and narrates the film. So, he pulls these little red... Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke. Ethan Hawke pulls these little red baby shoes out of nowhere. They are super clean. Nothing else in the set is clean because they have been in the snow and they have human bodies and they are dirty. Of course they're dirty. That makes sense. Like the Some of those features of set detailing in this film are really believable. Um, I think it's also your friend Kevin who was like, "That's a depiction of cold." Like, yeah, we were yeah. talking about. I mean, well, we were talking about uh, the Pine Barrens episode of The Sopranos, but we got talking about yeah, depictions of cold and the ones that make us feel the most cold and uh, alive came up in the conversation, right. deservedly so. 
So it's cold and it's dirty, and a young man who has no children has these two children's shoes that he has somehow preserved through all of this time, through all of this wreckage, and he hands them to this other guy and says, when these are united again, they're a pair again, that's when we will be rescued. And it's just a really, like, absurd choice. It really feels like... It really feels like the filmmakers were like, okay, we need a symbol. We need a symbol that can be split and reunited. And like someone went like to a Walmart and bought baby shoes and brought them onto set one day. And the director was like, huzzah, you found it. Like that's, um, that, that is how it feels. It also, when I was thinking about, about this the other night, um, just preparing kind of mulling over my thoughts it has this other symbolic function which is like all of the women have died so there's no like thinking about babies as representing like the reproduction of humans um like just literal reproduction of like new life right there's no among this group of people like that has become impossible and so to kind of have these baby shoes emerge from nowhere kind of I guess makes a little bit more sense but it doesn't quite fit and again they're super clean and why does this man have baby shoes and it's to me it is very funny yeah it's i it's almost got this kind of non sequitur sort of like head scratching befuddledness to it where it's it occurs so late in the film that it's introduced it would almost be like if at like you know, 15 minutes before the end of Titanic, they introduced the idea of there being, uh, like, the necklace that eventually gets, uh, you know, rescued from the sunken ship and we realize it belongs to the narrator. Like, it's it's just Ethan Hawke suddenly has these baby shoes. He hands them over to his friend. And the final one of the final shots of the film is Ethan Hawke hanging out of the rescue helicopter waving the shoe as buddy holds up the other shoe he's waving it around uh i think it's like slow motion or at least like a big orchestral swell of music like they're really anticipating this resonating and being cathartic for the audience i remember as a kid scratching my head and not getting it and watching it now reinforced that it i don't know if somewhere there's like a three-hour director's cut of a live sitting somewhere and they explore the shoes more, and we understand what the significance of them is until they become a symbol of of the rescue and the reconnection with society. But it doesn't work. It's very. It comes across very silly. Yeah, it comes across very silly. And as I said when we were watching, as someone whose job is like interpreting text, I'm like, I guess a symbol, like it's by its nature, it's not. It's, like, symbolic beyond the physical. Like, I guess a symbol can be, like, a clean, dry pair of shoes for babies where there are no babies. Like, I guess symbols can operate that way. And yet, I still... Yeah, it's a little, like, a children of men thing. Like, yes, and now we will go to society where we will find women and make babies who will wear these shoes. Yeah, it's it's an interesting... Interesting choice, for sure. A fi- yeah, if a lot of the other things that are kind of worth giggling about in the film are like quirky decisions that ultimately are charming this might be the one like failure in the film yeah i wish i could be a fly on the wall in the conversation that was like 
baby shoes. That's what we need is, is baby shoes. Um, yeah, so I think that's what I have. I want to make an announcement about email and then yeah, reviews. That's but. actually more than I had. I, I was discovering things as I spoke. So I, I came to the table with more than I had prepared. I love that you, you're like, I came to the table with like... I was going to say more food. But. More f- <laughs> with John Malkovich and why are there baby shoes? And then we had a great yeah. conversation. Um, so we are, um, like we've said a couple times, we're planning on a six-episode kind of mini-series, but we're like kind of on the fence about it. And if people enjoy listening and find the conversations insightful, you know, that's a decision we're making about if we if we want to record beyond our little series that we're doing as much for ourselves as, as anyone. So if you like the show and you're interested in it, you can help us by like rating the show. It feels crazy to say that out loud, but um, that lets us know that people like it and are interested. So it's really helpful for us. Um, we have an email. So we decided that like if people are listening and want to communicate, that'd be super cool. It is uh, cannibalconversations at gmail.com. And I actually have an audience question um, if people are interested, which is when I was reading reviews, I found a number that were about people um, like being given this text in school. So I watched it in grade 10 English class. Uh, someone, one of the reviews mentioned watching it in history class and another person uh, mentioned watching it in exercise science and this film is not exercise science and it's not history. Um, So if you watched this film for a class in high school or otherwise, we invite you to email us and tell us and we will maybe uh, read those in our next episode if anyone responds. Uh, Yeah, and on that note, I will also say that at my high school in my grade 12 religion class, we watched the Harrison Ford remake of Sabrina to teach us about family values. And I'm still trying to figure out what that was all about. So (laughs) that's funny. All right. Uh, I'm going to read some reviews. The first one is half a star. So I'm bringing with my own formula. Your basic stranded in the mountains movie. Nothing special. That's an uninspired. I don't like that review. That guy could have come up with more could to have say. Come up with more yeah, to that's say. a bad faith review. Uh, in 2008, Tom G says one and a half stars. People eat each other. People don't eat each other. Tom, mutual cannibalism is not possible. Tom's a snob. Uh, three and a half stars. They eat people in this movie. Hmm. Uh, two and a half stars. For some reason, they made us watch this in grade school. Three stars. Great movie from start to end. Uh, three stars better than I expected. Three and a half stars. I've seen this movie so many times and I don't really understand why. It was my babysitter's favorite movie, so maybe she wrote that review. I, maybe she wrote that review. Yeah. Uh, no punctuation, no capitals. Would you eat a friend? Three stars. And three and a half stars. But who grows up to be John Malkovich? Is that actually one? Yeah. That's- oh, that's funny. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's the guy with the shoe. I'll have to contact that reviewer and offer my theory. You can uh, go back to 2009 and find Brian on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't want to do that now. <laughs> You're like, no, thank you. I will not. That's the last thing Brian wants, too. He probably wishes he never wrote that review. <laughs> All 
Alright, so this has been surprisingly fun for the film that we're discussing. I really uh, enjoyed talking to you, Zachary, about this film. And I enjoyed speaking to you, Jocelyn. And if you want to send us email with negative feedback, just keep it constructive. Don't be a dick. Yeah, I know what my voice sounds like or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Dickish things you might say. Alright, thank you for uh, listening um, to our conversation and join us next week for uh what's the film titus julie tamor's titus with an old friend of the cannibal the CanCon podcast anthony hopkins is back amazing. will he be eating people someone will be <laughs> amazing uh all right join us next week for that toodaloo